I'm Jane Hathaway from the History Department, and uh, I'm here to introduce our speaker, Professor Issa Blumey from Georgia State University. Uh, before I do that, I'd like to thank uh, the sponsors of his visit. First of all, the Mershon Center itself, Mershon Center for International Security Studies, the Center for Slavic and Eastern European Studies, the Department of History, and the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures. And I'd like to extend a special note of gratitude to Mr. Stephen Highland, a graduate student in the Department of History, who's an old friend of ESA's and who really engineered this whole visit. And finally, just a little bit of advertising. Um, Professor Bloomy will also be giving a talk tomorrow on a completely different topic. Uh, it's called um, Rethinking the Late Ottoman Empire in the Balkans. And I'm just going to not so discreetly start passing around a flyer. Um, well, that actually gives me a good segue into introducing him because Professor Bloomy is one of the extremely rare scholars who has done meaningful primary research and publication on both a Balkan and an Arab province of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, that combination is very, very rare in the field, although it's desperately needed. But you can see why it's rare, because uh, in addition to the obvious linguistic challenges, you also need some kind of familiarity with the provincial contexts, which are very different, and of course, a thorough knowledge of Ottoman institutions. So he's one of the rare scholars who brings that combination to his efforts. Um, his resume is extremely impressive, and I won't... Uh, take up too much time going over it, because if I went over the whole thing, we'd be here all night and then some. Uh, he received his Ph.D. in 2005 at New York University in the joint program in Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies and History. Uh, already before he received his Ph.D., he had published a book called, uh, based on his dissertation, unless I'm greatly mistaken, called uh, Rethinking the Late Ottoman Empire, a Comparative Social and Political History of Albania and Yemen from 1878 to 1918, which was published by the ISIS Press in Istanbul in 2003. Since then, I'll only um, give you two more titles because I assure you there are many more, both in the form of books and in the form of articles. Uh, Political Islam Among the Albanians, Are the Taliban Coming to the Balkans?, which was published um, by the Kosovar Institute for Policy Research and Development in Pristina in 2005. And he has a book forthcoming from Rutledge called uh, Chaos in Yemen, Societal Collapse and the New Authoritarianism, uh, which will be connected to today's topic. I should also mention that he's been um, quite the public intellectual and really has done quite a bit of service in consulting and uh, like activities in Kosovo and elsewhere. So, but you didn't come here to listen to me today. So without further ado, I will uh, turn the floor over to Professor Issa Blumey. Thank you very much for that very nice introduction. And uh, I assure, assure you um, that my respect for Jane Hathaway is mutual, if not more um, intense but I'll spare that uh, public praise for another time because no doubt you all want to hear about what the hell is going on in Yemen, or maybe not. Uh, I get the impression that here in the United States, uh, very much 
what, how we think about the world is dictated by forces that are not necessarily reflective of the forces on the ground in said countries. So uh, part of my frustration with how events have transpired in Southern Arabia over the last couple of years is uh, the rather misinformed and uninformed and in many ways manipulative use of certain tropes about the so-called Islamic world, tropes in particular about Yemen, and the consequences that have been devastating, I'm afraid, to those wonderful people of that region who I think deserve better. So in many ways, I dedicate everything I do henceforth um, to my brothers and sisters in that region. They deserve more and better than what we're giving them. To most objective observers, Yemen today is on the verge of collapse. According to various social development indicators, indeed, the country is the poorest Middle East uh, in the Middle East region, with at least 58% of the children undernourished. Massive numbers of people are uh, internally displaced due to conflict, um, and that largely uh, stems from the current, the two current insurgencies that are taking place in the country, as well as the kind of nasty um, politics of expelling Yemeni workers in the Gulf from the Gulf after the first uh, Gulf War in which the Americans in Saudi Arabia um, in some not-so-subtle ways dealt with a dispute between Iraq and Kuwait. Studies also suggest that Yemen's 3.2 annual population growth rate is overwhelming the country's limited human and human state and natural resources, exasperating the strain on the country's meager social services and poor infrastructure is the fact that Yemen is a major destination for the Horn of Africa's migration, migrants seeking access to labor markets in the Gulf. Adding to the, catast- uh, to the catastrophe is the fact that this impoverished country of 23 million people also suffers from serious environmental issues, especially the rapid depletion of water supplies, a condition that hinders efforts to expand Yemen's considerable agricultural potential. In many ways, this was the breadbasket of the Red Sea region. If you drive through Yemen today, you can see there's very old traditions and techniques um, to feed themselves and indeed outlying regions. Um, but I will not get into this now, but there, there are certain factors that contribute to why Yemen cannot feed itself anymore. And one of them is the fact that there's this concern about water supply. Now, to social scientists, they often see a direct correlation between such terrible socioeconomic and environmental indicators and an ineffective government, incapable of addressing the needs of so many disparate groups of people who have yet to eliminate their supposedly pre-modern patterns of socialization. The relatively, quote-unquote, weak Yemeni government faces any number of challenges that continue to threaten to sink the entire region into chaos. Yemen South, for example... In Yemen South, for example, the number of regional movements surfacing since 2007 constitutes one of the major challenges to the long-term stability of the region. As seen from the outside, the underlying problem with the frequent deadly clashes between protesters and government troops is over who has the right to claim sovereignty over this southern area. And this, this area I'm referring to was formerly known as um, the uh, South Yemen the Yemeni state, in other words, does not command the kind of leverage conventional models require of a kind of cliche nowadays, state, state uh, society dyad. 
as a consequence, lingering societal issues, unresolved since Yemen was created out of two separate states in 1990, threatened to sink the young country into another conflict in the South that would surpass the destruction experienced in the short-lived civil war of 1994. Indeed, Yemen had a rather brutal, short-lived civil war between former North and South Yemen. Um, And I'm hoping that you have some familiarity with that war. I can't get into the details today. Fears over a rejuvenated Southern separatist movement has recently been overshadowed, overshadowed, however, by the expanding conflict in the northwest of the country, along the areas that border Saudi Arabia. Since at least 2000, a bloody confrontation has raged on and off between the competing local groups in the northern province of Saada and other provinces that border the area and the central state. By 2004, this disparate group of belligerents were often quite, with often quite different agendas seemed to have coalesced around an expanding spiritual, moral, commercial, and political movement known most commonly today in the newspapers as Houthi al-Houthi. Named after a charismatic, charismatic former member of parliament, the Houthi movement has become the principal representative of this long, rebellious region. Over time, al-Houthi and his sons have mobilized a heterogeneous group of people to conduct an increasingly bloody insurgency against the Yemeni state and its uh, increasingly shrinking number of allies that now commands even the attention of U.S. senators and the United States government. Not only has the conflict in Saada uh, disrupted regional life, but the fighting has now spread into neighboring Saudi Arabia itself. As Saudi air and land forces, and I would add American forces, although it's not really um, advertised, and its Yemeni counterparts conduct daily bombing raids in a vain attempt to defeat this growing insurgency. The frequent stories of innocent civilians and large numbers of Yemeni military personnel killed by this fighting only intensifies the impression that, according to outsiders, Yemen is in a state of chaos. As if this were not enough to sink Yemen into deeper poverty and structural failure, there is also the issue with, quote-unquote, radical Islam. The control, as, the country as, as a whole has become, has long been accused of providing a safe haven to various puritanical groups that purportedly attract like-minded individuals from around the Islamic world to attend their schools. According to a number of sources, these seminaries are not only accommodating pupils eager to learn idiocentric interpretations of Islamic law, but that it also provides cover for radical groups conspiring to attack various enemy assets around the world, from the so-called underwear bomber to a litany of other people who have supposedly failed to attack the United States and its allies. Now, such associations with al-Qaeda and its interconnections with two different insurrections had by December 2009 started to attract the attention of the U.S. media. Indeed, so persistent are these images of a perpetually inebriated, backward, and violent Yemen unequivocally linked to the larger story of militant Islam that the country has become one of those frontline states in America's war on terror. Once accused by, and this is interesting because the regime was once accused by the United States of neglecting its international obligations in respect to dealing with such uh, uh, putative radical groups. Now what seems to happen is that the regime of Ali Abdullah Salah, who has been in power actually since 1978, um, has recently positioned himself successfully as Washington's ally against various manifestations of radical Islam. 
As a result of its increased in, uh, cooperation with the United States, the regime has actually secured greater direct support from uh, the United States and its allies. Now, I would suggest, unfortunately, such support has been accompanied by a new willingness to resort to violence, the consequences being many regions of the country have witnessed in the past few years a dramatic rise on attacks, not only on, on government forces by so-called Islamic terrorists, but also attacks on uh, civilians who seem to have no history uh, no historic connection to these um, assumed radical groups. Now, this proves troubling because these uh, state actions often take the form of extrajudicial assassinations carried out by professional hitmen, or more, even more notoriously recently, unmanned drones that attack from the air, often with considerable civilian casualties. These measures re represent a shift, I, I suggest, in the entire nature of Yemen's political environment, that uh, does not bode well for the future. Among other things, the rather dubious shoot-to-kill policy, often based on easily corrupted so-called intelligence, predictably has become the source of tension in the country, not a solution. Many locals have warned that worsening chaos in Yemen may be the long-term consequence of the regime's strategic shift to facilitate the United States' highly dubious strategy of using uh, violence towards uh, identified threats. I have written a forthcoming book arguing that this slide towards great, greater state violence at the expense of pursuing what were traditional strategies of conflict resolution will only result in a dramatic increase in regional instability. The consequence of an internal collapse in Yemen, quite possible considering the growing risk of two separate regional insurgencies going on at the same time, would have immediate and long-term consequences that, not, that no one can either fully predict or offer policies and suggestions to control. I forgot to leave this up for you. This is a um, map of Yemen, uh, more or less the, the former South Yemen, and where throughout this southern part of the Arabian Peninsula, there are ongoing conflicts between state authorities and local communities. And this is the area in which the so-called Houthi insurgency is operating. And it's actually quite an extensive area. And this is very mountainous. And this is a border area that has, since 2000 at least, become highly militarized and very contentious space, which I'll, refer, I'll talk about a little bit more later. Now, I refer to this, this, this concern that there may be an internal collapse of Yemen that will have dramatic consequences for not only Yemen itself, but the entire region. Now, I actually see, tragically, that there are parallels going on here that reflect in, much, in many ways what was happening in the Horn of Africa in the 1970s. And for anyone who's thinking uh, long-term about this, um, think about the consequences of what happened in the Horn of Africa from 1970s onwards. If we have a similar thing happening in southern Arabia, um, the human suffering uh, can be quite extensive. The consequences of such a slide are largely misrepresented today by the very analysts who have influenced the strategic adjustments made in the United States over the last decade. In this respect, the Yemeni regime's outside patrons clearly do not fully appreciate the incumbent dangers with Salah's shift towards violent confrontation rather than negotiation. Part of the problem appears to reside in the fact many of the decisions are based on a misplaced faith in a body of knowledge that is predicated on some very disturbing false assumptions about the people of Yemen, or peoples, I have to emphasize. 
These assumptions are based on an analytical approach still largely taught in introductory courses in, uh, in, on the Middle East, around the world. That is, students are encouraged to identify something as complex and multifaceted as the Middle East and the Islamic world, in quotes, as cultural monoliths that can be analyzed collectively in order to help explain what is happening in the larger world in general terms. Now, I've been a long proponent of complicating things as we study uh, various corners of this so-called Islamic world, and I, in this book, argue there are direct consequences of trying to overly simplify things, reducing everything to a Shia-Sunni conflict or Iranians, Iran's uh, dirty uh, tricks or indeed the whole phenomenon of tribalism as an explanation for what goes on in Yemen. The problem is adopting the generic terms usually found in Middle East studies like tribalism, radical Islam, sectarianism, and an assumed politics of difference oversimplifies the constantly modifying expressions of diverse peoples in a variety of social, economic, and political contexts. These terms thus distort the strategic calculations of government policymakers, I suggest. As a result, I wish to present here an argument for a serious reconsideration of how Yemen is positioned in the priorities of these foreign powers that are enabling the regime's uh, precipitous slide towards chaos. This can only be done, however, hang in there, we'll make it, okay, uh, if the analytical categories used by scholars, policymakers, and journalists are handled with considerably more sensitivity for the complexity of South Arabia. Um, it is one of the paradoxes of Yemen that Saleh's early post-unification strategy in the, uh, in the South, again, the countries were unified only in 1990, was to actually uh, uh, mobilize uh, northern elements or northern allies to actually try to move, uh, to move southwards. And indeed, because of, it was a political battle, struggle over ascendancy in, in the national government, if you will, or federal government, there was also a, a recognized attempt to infiltrate southern areas with uh, problem makers, what we would call today radical uh, Muslims. So uh, the, the Salah regime actually tried to create new niches for locals that paradoxically gave them leverage as opposed to limiting their capacity to reduce the state, gave them, actually gave them leverage, this exchange between Salafists and locals um, over the surrogates of the state who were supposedly being infil infiltrating the South to uh, sustain uh, authority and ascendancy in the political, larger political um, uh, dynamic of Yemen as a unified country. Over the last decade in particular, these niche uh, polities flourished, ultimately frustrating Salah's external allies who demand a state with a stronger hold on Yemen's heterogeneous society. Now, in the end, it is possible to say Salah created his own Frankensteins by flirting uh, with Salafist so-called jihadist groups as he attempted to subjugate southern Yemen's political elite. That being said, at the same time, Salah has actually used the rising tensions his government has in many ways responsible for creating with his on-again, off-again allies as a point of emphasis in the larger war of terror. So he's actually positioned himself as an essential component to this war of terror uh, on the basis of, of instability in a country that he's largely responsible for in the first place. After all, bloody clashes over the years with various so-called radical groups has actually strengthened the sensibility in Washington that with a blank check, Saleh would eagerly use force to confront any group deemed uncooperative in this self-declared war. 
In other words, the struggle for ascendancy is not so much leverage or consolidation, but simple conflict itself. We are now facing a time in the Middle East where actually instigating conflict and violence in the streets has positive results for regimes that are not popular in the first place. The more resistance Salah faces, the more lucrative the relationship with the outside world it seems to become for the regime. Put differently, Salah and his uh, shrinking number of allies, both domestically in the region and in the West, may be instrumental in cultivating and expanding the very forces they claim to be fighting in the first place. The particulars of the struggle over ascendancy in the South, which I suggest ultimately points to a strategic monopoly over the oil and natural gas wealth found in South Yemen, have many parallels with how events have evolved in, in the north of Yemen as well. In both regions, again, I'm emphasizing here that, that they are largely treated as separate problems, but they increasingly uh, seem to have... Uh, you see my... Yeah, you can see the black dot. They seem to increasingly have the same origins from which were the conflict where they were maybe localized conflicts have expanded to much larger conflicts, largely due to the same kind of approach the regime itself has taken. This is a close-up to this northern area I'm talking about. There is plenty of evidence to suggest that, that for instance, uh, as many Yemenis claim, the Saudi government, the Saudi regime, is actually largely responsible for some of the um, ex expansion of conflict in these regions due to policies which I can explain maybe in a question and answer. Uh, to many, Saudi encroachment on its northern neighbor in Iraq throughout the 20th century, as well as the dynasties, the Saudi dynasty's expansion in Rashidi territories, the conquest of Hejaz, of the Asir, and large parts of the Persian and Arab Gulf, Gulf coast, coastline all serve to give further legitimacy to Yemeni contentions that in many ways the problems in, 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 in the Arabian Peninsula at least stem from the machinations of the Saudi regime. At the same time, there is an increasing recognition that the United States has also played a disruptive role in Yemen's uh, malaise. Some of the more extreme claims, in fact, hurt in Yemen of late effectively linked Saudi Arabia's ongoing fear of a unified Yemen as Yemen unified is a considerably more threatening neighbor than a divided Yemen, and America's imperialistic nature in a conspiracy aimed at assuming that Yemen remains fragmented and weak while its natural resources continues to be plundered by foreign interests. And indeed, there are considerable, like I mentioned before, oil and natural gas interests in southern Yemen. This last analysis assumes an intimacy between the Saud dynasty and its American benefactors, that is supported by the research of a growing number of scholars in our respective fields. As can be monitored via the media since November 2009, the increased focus on Yemen as a strategic concern gives credence to Yemenis making the direct link between U.S.-Saudi uh, machinations and the regional instability that certainly facilitates the two states' control over Yemen's resources. Now, it appears that Salah's regime, like the United States, has funded select religious groups in order to help assure that the potential threat to the regime um, originating from the South and the former uh, Socialist Party in particular uh, never rears its uh, threatening head. Again, through the support of various groups that seem to have some connections with the larger phenomena we call today political Islam or Salafism or, or the like. 
Now, these groups include uh, the, these, um, this, this, the support that the Salah regime has offered is including facilitating the continued migration into many southern regions of particularly rigid Salafist groups. And, of course, as already noted, uh, the, these were not uniformly cooperative with the Salah regime, as we now know today. These groups had their own uh, internal dynamic, I'm arguing, and many scholars have identified this. And their subsequent relationship with this local population is often not discussed in the growing number of studies that mention their role in regional politics, does bear um, some, does require some moment of speculation and, and consideration. While there may have been some of these infiltrating groups um, who were supposed to proselytize and, and, and maybe undermine local institutions and and challenge some of the established uh, social order of southern Yemen, these people nevertheless were able to start forming um, serious relationships with local communities. This is not only an antagonistic one where they're, they're living on uh, isolated enclaves and not interacting. They're adapting to, uh, to the, the conditions on the ground. And this, I suggest, suggests there's a new kind of uh, dynamic happening in South Yemen, often unintended by the various actors who supported the migration of these groups in the first place. At times, for instance, these groups provided the only social security net for locals. At other times, however, they were uh, these very self-isolating groups, I suggest, where this is the common um, treatment of, uh, that we, we, we read in, in, the, in the scholarship about them. So... This is a crucial story that deserves elaboration, as it helps us speculate about why locals joined the many temporary alliances emerging in southern Arabia over, over the crucial last 20-year period. In other words, we not, should not simply resort to tropes uh, um, that is often used in analysis of Yemen, that these are just simple Salafist groups and the people who are engaging with them or fighting against them are necessarily doing so on, on a kind of a rigid criteria of uh, of. Um, criteria of, of, of local politics or an, assume, an assumption that, that they are a, a mutually uh, um, mutual opponents of each other. That was, that was very coherent. I'll come back to this idea in a second. Complicating the explanations of why groups are forged to challenge the state in the case of the South Yemen and in the North is part of a process of suggesting a new framework of analysis I was referring to before. Fortunately, a generation of French scholars are breaking new ground and deconstructing some of the less, less helpful sweeping generalizations about Salafism in Yemen today. The work of François Bourgat and his students in particular have usefully disaggregated the ideological and theological orientations of these movements. While, unfortunately, their findings are now circulating in Washington, D.C. and un unintentionally feeding a growing industry of terrorism studies that actually contributes to the very reductionism their work disputes, it is their underlying caution not to treat these movements outside their specific communal, ideological, and social economic context that proves invaluable to the points I'm making here. Some of the important conclusions one can draw from their studies about the groups are operating within southern, former southern Yemeni territories reflects the continuous emergence of new polities. Recognizing various changing dynamics in rural Yemen regarding the phenomena of political Islam helps us consider the deeper set of factors contributing to the relative success or failure of these groups, both locally and in the larger uh, Yemeni context. It is perhaps misleading to think of these groups as so influential, however. The measure of the, their success is often the paraphernalia convert, uh, coveted by terrorism experts these days, their websites, their newspapers, taped sermons. But does that necessarily reflect 
a, a success on, in the larger um, context of interacting with local populations. I could produce a website and say whatever I want in it. Indeed, so, some websites have proven to be complete shams where there's some guy wearing a beard and saying, I'm going to go attack Americans, and, and it's picked up sometimes, but other times it's proven to be completely unreliable. This fixation on objects of study that this new industry of terrorism studies covets does not necessarily do the work of understanding the extent of local group interactions. There is, there is, in fact, plenty of evidence to suggest these groups are facing a hostile local population at times, with many adopting a siege-like mentality, very much akin to the early colonizers in these very same areas. This is especially interesting considering the quite different set of social, economic, social religious movements seemingly reestablishing a foothold in South Yemen at the same time, and it gets very little um, discussion. And this is the reemergence of the Sufi orders that have been prominent in South Yemen for millennia almost. Now, this takes me back to the Salah regime in, um, itself. Several adjustments that Salah's regime has made over the past two decades indicate an important administrative shift that can only be interpreted in hindsight as a provocative reversal of older policies of accommodation for some of his allies or for some of the regime's allies. In the past, Salah re re uh, released prisoners as a public gesture of statemanship. Now he publicly executes them in a gesture towards the outside world showing that he actually can fight the war on terrorism on their, in their terms. In previous confrontations with communities in Sadaf over the lack of government services or abusive corruptive, uh, corrupt officials, after an initial exchange of gunfire and cannons or whatever, outsider arbitration always brought two sides to peace. Today, Salah's operation Scorched Earth says it all. There will no longer be negotiations. It is a complete annihilation. It is the it is complete annihilation. The regime and its allies seek today in the context of its in the larger global context of war and terror. Similarly, events in South Yemen have uh, dis disintegrated because of the use of systemic violence and heavy-handed persecution of dissent. Today, we can see the consequences of the regime taking a more violent approach to engaging with its presumed constituents in something similar to what is happening in Pakistan today, I would suggest, where large swaths of that vital country are now reduced to violent localized clashes, often involving extra-state actors, especially private companies, Yemen is sinking into chaos. Now, of course, I'm referring to the, the increasing use of outsourcing of, uh, of companies to project violence around the world, whether it's Blackwater, XC, or other operations that that exist out there. This process cannot, be only, cannot only be read in regional and doctrinal terms. Everything cannot be reduced to the good Muslim, bad Muslim formulas that inevitably put the regime in a, a difficult situation vis-a-vis -vis its temporary American friends. Outside observers and terrorist experts in particular have consistently failed to calculate the long-term instability of going in strong in, um, in areas like this that actually advocates uh, advocates supporting regimes like the Salah without any um, consideration of the conditions uh, for the consequences of that support. If one investigates the particularly heavy-handed operations in Albion in 1998, sorry, which are, are in this area here, 
for example, it is clear assertive counter-terrorist measures taken by Salah's loyalists simply exasperated local alienation and hence hostility towards the regime. This escalation of tensions and ultimately the creation of an armed resistance movement that may or may not still exist today did not take did not need to take place when there was plenty of evidence to suggest that those targeted, targeted by the regime had previously enjoyed, actually, strong relations with the regime. Indeed, according to news reports, it was Salah's regime itself that recruited these activists recently involved in international operations against the Soviet Union, for instance, it was particularly in Uzbekistan, and then later in Iraq, in China and Afghanistan. Many of those who are now uh, fleeing their previous conflicts found safe haven in Yemen, so it is said. Now, this influx of so-called Afghan Arabs into South Yemen after unification led to the creation of, among other politically entrepreneurial groups, the so-called Aden Abiyan Islamic Army that surfaced in some of the literature. Now, this so-called uh, Aden Abd Aden Abiyan Islamic Army that waged a campaign of terror against the Yemenist Socialist Party, first of all, first and foremost, not the regime. So the Yemen Socialist Party, the former rulers of South Yemen, who happened to be also the opposition group now in, in the unified Yemen, were the primary targets of the, this group's actions. According to Saudi-funded Shakr al-Sat, this loose group of opportunists, mercenaries, and legitimate proselytizers were linked to the commander of Yemen's first armored division. There were kind of identified links between this important individual, Al-Muhsin al-Ahmar, who happened to be President Salah's, who happened to be actually married into President Salah's family, and also a member of the powerful family of Harik al-Fadli, who was um, known for raising Mujahideen to go fight the Soviet Union in the Cold War period. Despite the fact that there are clear links between uh, uh, Salah and the, uh, the Yemeni military and the weapons being sent to this so-called Aden Abiyan Islamic army over time, eventually this relationship soured. According to local sources, the group increasingly attacked rivals who were no longer just communist infidels linked to the Socialist Party. Much of the violence, but what some would suggest is that much of this violence became opportunistic kind of economic oriented, um, economic, uh, with economic roots as opposed to ideological roots. <coughs> and this is, again, the larger point I'm trying to make, that each time we see, um, see something like the kidnapping of... Uh, American tourists or German tourists in Yemen, tragic that it often ends up being. There are other factors that can possibly contribute to, to these activities. It is often known, when Stephen and I were living in Yemen, that often our, a car could be stopped, a local village would demand a certain kind of payment for the right to drive through the village. Often, if there was an opportunity, they would take somebody hostage for a while and demand that uh, water be delivered or some kind of service provided uh, would be provided by the government. This was often the only recourse that, that communities had in, a rather, in an otherwise disinterested, decentralized Yemeni society. As is clear in the Abiyan, Abiyan case in, of 1998, Salah did not need uh, foreign coaxing to go after his um, his enemies, or his rivals. Despite the seemingly clear-cut dynamics of who was responsible for the, the, the kind of escalation of violence that led to the kidnapping of German, t t uh, no, I was about to say terrorists, German tourists, um, 
in 2008. The subsequent violent confrontations with these so-called terrorists was clearly shaped by a history that went deeper than the events themselves. And I would suggest that we need, as, as if you're in, studying policy, security studies, it behooves you to actually delve a little bit deeper into what could possibly, uh, um, how can we actually explain uh, what happened other than this, the assumption that these are just simple Muslim terrorists, as often we, we hear in the media. Now, over the next several years, communities throughout the country would challenge the Salah regime, often in specific reference to the coalition that Salah reformed with various uh, Salafist groups as well as with various powers outside, in particular Saudi Arabia. In time, despite efforts to frame these conflicts to Salah's heroic struggle against this, uh, radical Islam or archaic tribal groups, which is often noted today in um, celebratory uh, articles about the Salah regime, the very fact such confrontations took place has transformed the political horizons of many in Yemen and has thus forced Salah deeper towards a point of no return in respect to the slide towards a unique form, what do I call authoritarianism. Indeed, according to some opponents, Salah has used this war of terrorism not only to consolidate power, reap profits, but also as a pretext to introduce his son in the political arena. Right? He's actually... There are um, some key moments in where the son puts on a uniform and actually demonstrates his uh, military prowess in, in stepping over dead bodies of terrorists. Now, these kind of photo ops we find throughout, throughout the world, and it's no different um, in the case of Abdul Salah. But I would suggest that there's some things that we have to really pay attention to um, in respect to where this is all going to take us if... Um, if, 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 if I am, um, if I myself and Francois Bouga and others prove to be uh, unpersu unpersuasive in our arguments, because what in the long term may end up happening is that we will see an explosion of conflicts like Saada in, in, in southern Yemen, where, where there is actually no central logic, there is no some, some kind of ideological guiding guidepost uh, animating these people's um, uh, resistance other than the fact that, for instance, in the north of Yemen today, these areas have been more or less sealed off from their traditional areas of exchange. Um, this, this border was actually formally drawn while it was etched in on some kind of obscure map in 1934 on a, on a, a treaty that was never really enforced. In year 2000, Saudi Arabia suddenly decides to secure this frontier where in the past the, the inhabitants of both sides of this border who are more or less interrelated and constantly traded with each other uh, were able to travel back and forth without need of passport. In year 2000, this border was quite literally sealed off with a fence, a guarded trench, and the consequences were that the local markets were suddenly closed off. Now, the way we hear the story today about the, um, the, the, the conflict in the north, it's all about Iranian infiltration and the encouragement of Shia to, to go and attack, uh, on behalf of Iran, of course, attack a, a regime that uh, is an ally of the United States. But what we actually find on the ground is that these are people who have been impoverished by the, the, the creation of this border area. They have been impoverished and devastated by the use of military force against those supposedly demanding very basic things like, can we have a road to our village? Can we actually have access to the other side of the border? Because my cousin's there, my wife's family is from there. And 
as the regime in Sana'a and as the Saudi state, along with the United States Special Forces, ratcheted it up, the violence, uh, there's only two ways that people could respond. And I would suggest that it's a very human response for people to react uh, in kind if necessary. there was a brief ceasefire two months ago. I don't know if you've been following this, but there's been ongoing violence since then. This, this, this conflict in the North is only going to expand in the future. What is rarely reported, and I was able to identify this uh, myself, is there's actually an active campaign on the Saudi side to remove the Ismailis who live there, who have been living there for hundreds of years, replacing them with uh, people from Eastern provinces of Saudi Arabia. So aside from destroying local economy, there is also an attempt, attempt, probably through a strategic thinking, that we need to remove these people who are potentially dangerous from uh, remaining in these areas. Now, that leads me to skip ahead here and spare you the details to conclude that most experts who evoke an essentialist nature to Yemen, Yemen's conflicts, and encourage the regime to play along seem to have failed to realize that the use of colonial-era terminology makes any accurate reading of what is happening in Yemen difficult at best. This constitutes a tragic and potentially disastrous strategic mistake that has, ha- that has ha- already happened in the Horn of Africa and is currently happening in Iraq and Afghanistan and indeed could sink the entire region into chaos for decades. I therefore argue that the diagnostic methods and enforcement strategies adopted by several U.S. administrations the European Union, and indeed the Salah regime itself, cannot in the end serve as the foundation to a long-term strategy of stability and bring stability to this region. Rather, it behooves external actors to learn to read Yemen's crisis using different analytical tools than those volunteered by stakeholders like Salah's regime themselves, who may actually have an interest, we must think, in perpetuating conflict as opposed to resolving them. Not only will adopting a more critical analytical position vis-a-vis the stakeholders involved in Yemen's conflicts help political scientists and policymakers better understand the dynamics of behind all of this violence, but a more sophisticated, less crudely, one could say, orientalist approach to analyzing Yemen will produce long-term results in the form of a more representative, stable, and adaptive future generation of leaders in the region. This last benefit is especially important to consider for policymakers, as Salah's regime may not last another 20 years. There are rumors circulating in Yemen, for instance, that he's in poor health himself. Other rumors suggest powerful elements within the military, including Major General Ali Mohsin al-Ahmar, who is the commander of the Sadah campaign itself, and Salah's brother-in-law, are prone to thinking that they may actually stage a coup to remove him from power if things get more unstable. In other words, talk on the Yemeni street indicates that the authoritarian shift of the uh, Salah regime since unification in 1990 may have paradoxically destroyed Sana'a's ability to keep Yemen intact. In this regard, one need not look any further than the regime's failure to suppress either insurgency in the north or in the south. To understand the tactics to stifle dissent can can only be counterproductive in in the South Arabian context. I ended with with perhaps a counterintuitive suspicion. Perhaps it is the fire chief who is actually starting all these fires. Salah's adoption of a new set of policies vis-a-vis current and potentially future rivals 
helps his regime consolidate a monopoly of diplomatic and commercial relations with the outside world. He's become the only game in town. At the same time, the so-called war on terror helps eliminate the cumbersome domestic politics that have long burdened leaders in, in Yemen. In addition, terrorism linked to chaos in Yemen and other parts of the world fits in nicely with a larger structural orchestration by various market, corporate, and supergovernmental interests that have a vested interest in conflicts such as that has resulted, for instance, in the invasion of Iraq, the violence in Central Africa, and an expansion of the war on terror in Central Asia. In the end, resilient regimes like the one in Yemen today will adapt to any and all manifestations of global power politics that surface in the future. But while these regimes will resort to pretty much anything to survive a constantly changing world, it is the engineers of this chaos who stand to continue to reap the profits from precious commodities extracted from war-torn regions, from the expansion of American military power, especially as, as, as it continues to be privatized, as well as from the ever-useful violent reactions for, from the millions of people whose lives have been forever changed by the consequence of what some people have called disaster capitalism. In other words, to find our enemy, perhaps we need to look into the mirror. Thank you very much. Yes. Um, Can you t tell me who you are if you're a student oh, or? Yes, I'm a student. Um, one of my majors is Arabic, so I've had some experience with Middle um, Eastern culture, which I very much agree is not monolithic, very diverse. Um, but I've talked to, known a lot of friends, um, and actually had a teacher in one of my Arabic classes who's been to Yemen and say, contrary to what you know, the State Department all Well, I would agree that Yemen is a wonderful place and uh, there's a wide variety of experiences one could have there. And it's, it's, it's a shame that that doesn't come to the surface more often. But as, as in most cases, whenever there's a, um, an adversary um, facing a, a quite considerable forces in mass media and um, the number of uh, interests that profit from conflict, the last, the last thing we're going to hear about our adversaries is that they're good, decent people. And why United States is actually um, elected in very, at various points in time to actually identify the Salah regime as an ally and um, the Salah regime's enemies as also adversaries in the United States requires a little bit of uh, cynicism, I would suggest. The consequences, are, I would just pay attention to the news a little bit. What's coming out of Yemen these days? We have these stories of 10-year-old brides, right? We have the story of violence in the streets. We have the story of what? Um, chaos. 
We have the story of the last remaining Jews being thrown out of Yemen. We have stories, what else do we have of Yemen that kind of characterize uh, the society as a whole as somehow dysfunctional, dangerous, threatening. Kotschewers. Deserving, in fact, of arbitrary use of violence from drones above. If they're not Al-Qaeda today, they're bound to be Al-Qaeda tomorrow. Yes, sir. Right. So, are all people from Alaska? I mean, it's it's a it's a classic kind of counter argument. Are all people from Alaska Sarah Palin like, or can we expect to have different uh, experiences with people from Alaska? I mean, again, it's. Stephen Highland came back with all his limbs, and uh, we used to go jogging up into the highlands with this wacko named François Brugat, who's an excellent scholar, and his students are fabulous, and they have spent considerable time trying to disaggregate this phenomenon called Salafism. I would highly recommend you take a look at some of their work. Bonfoy as well, he's recently published another book on this. And perhaps Bernard Heichel, who comes next week, will have something to contribute to this. But if you do choose to come next week, be a little sensitive to how actually Salafists are treated in the, in the, in the presentation. If they represent a monolith, it's kind of a single unit, or in fact there's complexity and, and quite uh, a number of distincting, uh, distinctive qualities to these groups that change over time, I, I have to insist, that context is very important, and people do... Their orientations do change. Their interests change. The conditions on the ground in of, oftentimes dictate um, the, the, the political alliances that people uh, forge over time. And this is certainly the case with, with the Salah regime. Francois B-U-R-G-A-T. Francois Bourgat. B-O-N-N-E-F-O-Y. Excellent scholars. And unfortunately, their work has been uh, misinterpreted and misused in Washington to argue something completely different. Yeah. And in the interior, mindful of, of 
not wishing to offend anyone, I, I, at an official reception, I refrained from sticking my hand out to, um, to meet my host and, and was, uh, um, was surprised to have my hand very firmly grasped by a man in a short clothes and a you know, very prominent prayer group. And by contrast, when I was in the American Embassy in Yemen a few years ago for a security briefing, um, I happened I happened to be very distracted by the unfortunate computer screensaver and the uh, young security attaché's screen as he was briefing me. He had a big picture on his screen that showed a garbage dump uh, with a big sign on it in scroll that said, Welcome to Yemen. And I thought, well, <laughs> you know, you juxtapose the two anecdotes, it, it, it kind of says, it brings out some of that richness that I hear. Well, you dehumanize people, it's easy to kill them. And Salah regime does that very well by uh, extending rather nasty language and unbecoming and, and certainly not part of Yemeni tradition, if there's such a thing as Yemeni tradition. But that being said, uh, leaders don't should not refer to their constituents in these terms. But again, this is a regime, um, as many are else are in the world, that are... Um, constantly needs to uh, use the language of, the, of, of Western racism in order to justify their own um, their own violence towards their their, their constituents. Yes, my brother. Uh, my name is Ghassan Imam. I'm from Yemen. I'm from Beach, Canada, and Michigan. I grew up in Abramovich, South uh, Province, and then I was raised up in Aden, the capital of the capital of South Yemen. And then I moved to Sana'a since 1990. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been here for six years. Um, I think yeah, I agree with you with mainly what you have said, but I have a question. Maybe I didn't know, I wasn't aware of that. You mentioned the migration of, of, of who people, uh, mainly from, from the north, which actually 16 million, used to be maybe now 18 million, to the south, um, kind of uh, changing the, the, uh, um, the uh, group there from being Sufis mainly to be Southies. I don't know, I don't recall actually any kind of group actually. Uh, what I, I can um, tell you about that is actually the education system changed. Uh, we actually been used to different system, which normally you could say Saudi because coming from you know, from scholars that actually was uh, educated in Saudi Arabia. And I think I, do, I doubt if there's any migration for group, but if you think about uh, if you are um, um, meaning that the migration of knowledge, I would agree with you, but there's no like group, uh, even the other African. Um, against any idea of jihadism. 
and the, the, the people of the southeast in, in, the, in the north, they call the Yemen, maybe are aware of this term, Muqbaliyin. Uh, no. So they are actually against the, even the jihad itself. So, so the Sufi term is why it actually used to be also due to, to present the Islam, uh, which is wrong completely. Salaf should be mean that people that are following the, the opinion of the companion of the Prophet, peace be upon you. And as a Muslim, I will actually refer to that also beyond Salaf. But uh, it didn't actually show Salaf because it's equal to, quote unquote, Qaeda or quote unquote, Taliban or quote unquote, whatever it is. No, actually, Salaf is actually that different group that actually sort of talk. So I do believe that the, the north of Yemen, the healthy himself, uh, his group actually was powered by the, when they came to make a balance between these Salafis, which are not actually against any, they are not actually even interfering with the government at all. They are against any party, any political party, we are aware of that. But he was doing that, right, in this balance, kind of to counterattack the Islamic uh, main uh, anti-government party, which is this, uh, as, as But uh, then, I think he, he overpowered them to the limit that they are not even asking for their services, as you mentioned, but also they are trying to bring back the Imani or the Mullah, as he claims. I know that when they were asked what are the requirements, what are your conditions, to sit down at the table to make the translation, they mentioned nothing. So I was aware of how come the six wars, there are actually six wars in the North of Yemen since 2001, 2000, for nothing. So I'm just asking about this question, how could the group were immigrating from North to South, and I give you about the regime itself, or itself actually trying to make a in the country And I believe also he's now using the Al-Qaeda as a term also to get support from foreign countries, especially USA, to just try to make it even worse and worse and try to control the southern movement, which basically uh, made because of the poverty people are trying to uh, get some kind of uh, basic services or basic equality between the people and the foreign one always needs to be a little concerned with how uh, we characterize our enemies. And often the, the trope is that, well, uh, the enemy has been created uh, by our enemy uh, or by the regime in the case of the Houthi. Well, Houthi, of course, will accuse that it's the regime that brought the Salafists to the north. and So it's a give and take, and uh, I guess that requires more research. But the important point that I'm happy to hear you you, you um, except is that it's more complicated than simply reducing everything to the Shia or the uh, or to the Salafists. And indeed, um, one of the points I was trying to make is that there's really, it's very impossible to characterize, it's impossible to characterize something called the Salafist movement in Yemen or any other context. And we have to actually look at the very specifics that change over time uh, as to why one group may be antagonistic, hostile towards the regime or hostile to their, uh, to their host communities in these regions. Now, as far as the uh, settlement of northerners, um, whether or not there were um, uh, uh, potentially um, uh, disruptive um, puritanical elements in that, you acknowledge the fact that the schools were, in fact, the curricula has changed considerably in Yemen as, as a result of unification and the, the victory of, of the Salah regime in the struggle over power in the unified Yemen in 1994. Um, as you probably know, and as, as if you drive through southern Yemen today, you will find it is considerable um, um, migration to the south, uh, 
in cities like Mokoa and Aden, there are large numbers of people who have been who have been encouraged to settle in these uh, southern parts of Yemen from the north, largely because of the huge influx of, uh, of people who came from the Gulf after 1990-91, when over a million Yemenis were expelled as a uh, as a consequence of the Salaf regimes raising a red flag and saying, well, maybe we shouldn't go to war against Saddam. Uh, you know, let's, let's negotiate about this. Maybe we can find a peaceful solution. And the, the response from the uh, Gulf nations was uh, expulsion of the large number of Yemenis who were working in, the, in their countries. And they caused a significant problem for the Yemeni state when they returned to Yemen. Um, there were large shanty towns, still are, outside of Sana'a, Hudaydah, uh, and then also in the south. And so there is a concern that many southerners have with, with, the, with the huge influx of northerners coming to settle in the south, replacing southern uh, police officers with northern police officers, replacing the soldiers in the barracks uh, with northerners. And so there's, in a sense, for many southerners, that there's, it's basically a country that has been occupied. Now, whether or not that's justifiable, um, that's, that can be debated. But that is an issue, and it's part of the um, discourse of resistance today um, as the uh, various groups emerge to struggle against since 2007. And again, you'll find in the news constantly reference to relatively small um, confrontations taking place throughout the South. The Salah regime refers to this as another action against al-Qaeda, uh, I would suggest that those who are actually being referenced as al-Qaeda would see themselves differently. My brother, if I can... Yes. In the Cold War, uh, the Horn of Africa was considered a strategic uh, necessity for um, competing powers. Uh, obviously, it's the access to the Red Sea where a huge percentage of uh, Europe's oil at least trend, um, flows every day. 3.2 million barrels a day now go through the Red Sea. Um, certainly, there's lots of uh, mineral um, deposits in large parts of what today is Somalia, um, the Ogodon. Um, which were considered to be um, vital to uh, a regime in, in Ethiopia that slowly emerged from its kind of isolation to becoming a formidable player and ally um, with the Soviet Union and then the United States. Somalia itself, uh, the story is well known, um, because of the machinations of outside powers, as much as local dynamics, uh, progressively uh, disintegrated as, as a state, which some could argue, if you're from the north, never should have been put together in the first place. Uh, and I've, I've, I see kind of this, ki this, this um, hyper uh, uh, attention to uh, supporting regimes that have their um, own rather expansionist interests um, and ambitions, often at the expense of uh, regional stability or regional collaboration, or maybe assuring regional autonomy within the context of a larger, say, state, can result in what we see today in Yemen, insurgencies that uh, will increasingly attract the, the attention of outside players. Uh, no doubt in Somalia today, the, the lack of a central government, there's, there's plenty of stories to suggest that 
Somalis uh, fishing, uh, uh, offshore uh, f- um, fisheries are being plundered by European f- fishing companies, and Somalia is being used as a dump for nuclear waste and, and um, medical waste from Europe. Uh, and that's something that uh, Naomi Klein kind of refers to, this, this one aspect of uh, disaster capitalism, that you kind of have this chaos in these societies, and um, there can be rather incipient plunder of the natural resources and human resources that these people have. Now, the Horn of Africa has become not only a very good client for uh, weapons traders, but it's also an important source of labor. Um, and one could, one could see the continuation of migration from the Horn of Africa into the Gulf uh, to find uh, work. Uh, a phenomenon that I think over 75,000 people tried to cross into Yemen last year with hundreds if not thousands dying in the process, drowning in, in uh, this often very volatile Red Sea, Gulf of Aden, uh, is, is a long-term byproduct of, uh, of the violence that in many ways could have been resolved if we didn't uh, instigate and encourage certain regimes or certain clusters of, of interest to pursue expansionist policies or reverts to violence as opposed to politics. And my concern is that Yemen, which has a long tradition of dealing with these rather very specific localized conflicts and the society function, we're losing that now. As There seems to be a strategy of colonization. There seems to be a strategy of, of using outside military power to fight your local domestic conflicts. So that's the parallel, I'm afraid. Yes? Under the umbrella of the leading party, the opposition scholars were doing, you have the Islamist party, the Islamic political party, and also the Yemeni Socialist party. None of the political scientists by any means, but it seems like while in modern you have the Islamic political party and the Socialist party and the Mm-hmm. I did not mention Islam. He was a prominent player throughout. Uh, I mean, Ahmed, he died recently, so he's kind of out of... Islam is a little bit in disarray as a party because of the death of the kind of... the patriarch of this party, if I can use that term. Um, uh, nevertheless, it, it is a significant party that had uh, large constituencies in the north and was able to secure for the longest time um, and a crucial role in the unified Yemeni politics, right? It served as a kind of counterweight to southern, um, uh, to, to southern socialist party, basically. There were other parties in the south, but it was largely the socialist party, which was the party that basically uh, moved from uh, in, uh, South Yemen to a unified Yemeni state, and they could more or less champion southern interest uh, in the unified Yemeni first coalition government in the transitional phase up until the elections in 93, and then later became opposition because they were not able to secure. Indeed, there were only the, the southern um, parties were only rep- constituted the third largest group within a unified Yemeni politics. This Islah party, which is a coalition of a number of uh, communities scattered throughout northern Yemen and increasingly in the mid-1990s, even in the south, uh, was the second largest party behind um, Abdul Salah's uh, party. Now, this is somewhat the point that I'm trying to make, is that we shouldn't assume political orientations or the trajectories of uh, political parties or political and economic actors on the basis of the fact that they position themselves as an Islamic party or a Muslim party. Uh, because uh, I wouldn't 
also Biso Kuda's uh, politics creates strange bedfellows on occasion, but indeed they do, and conditions dictate that. And uh, at some point, the Salah regime, Salah and the, uh, and the party realized that it no longer needed this Salah party to secure. It, it somehow made the calculation that at this stage forward, we're going to become the dominant party in Yemeni politics. We have, uh, we have the assets, we have the discourse, right? We're fighting against a global enemy in, in global uh, Al-Qaeda movement. Um, and we have command of the military, We've been able to eliminate all uh, disloyal elements from, from, the, uh, from the chain of command. And more importantly, uh, it seems that the uh, Salah regime had no interest in sharing the, the resources of the state anymore, which, although you don't hear much of it, uh, Yemen has, actually has considerable oil resources. It's a little expensive to produce at the moment. I mean, the moment it hits a threshold, however, a price threshold of 80 85 $90, the functioning wells that are now in operation, which are in the dozen maybe, can suddenly explode to two dozen, three dozen. There are upwards of 90 identified potential, potentially very rich wells in Yemen, on top of the, the large amount of that natural gas. So those are some of the kind of assets, the prize, if you will, to struggle over. And the more you 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 be, you, you separate yourself and distance yourself from the Islaf party, especially as the charismatic leader is no longer there, um, the easier it is to, to secure what I would suggest, the impression that the ensuing chaos and the violence that is manifested and is an expression of political frustrations um, only um, serves the interests of the Salah regime more. The more there's chaos in Yemen, the more the Salah regime becomes relevant and important to the outside world. And that's something that uh, you will find increasingly, I'm afraid, in a number of um, situations around the world. Stephen Island. When you and I were living in Yemen, there was a quite robust and quite free press. And I was listening to a BBC News account uh, some, some time back uh, where a Yemeni political observer said if Ali Abdullah Saleh wanted to, he could end the conflict tomorrow. Right, which is something that you're suggesting. You also mentioned that you know words on the street. I, I agree with you. Rumors are very important. We can uh, we can learn quite a bit from them. But is there a robust discussion in the Yemeni press? Has that free press that that I knew from more than ten years ago in Yemen has it disappeared? What sort of public conversation is going on about the insurgencies, or is there a group thing? Um. It's selective. The suppression of the media is selective. There's only so far you can go. Um, obviously, you read between the lines in any media market. This country's media, I find, um, in many ways, there are certain no-go areas. Uh, and uh, certainly that's the case in Yemen. Uh, but it is, uh, in contrast to other um, uh, societies, a very uh, uh, well-read one, one that actually does read still. Um, and... I would say the, the, the debate um, is refreshingly vibrant still. Um, the Internet has taken, I think, a toll on the newspapers. A lot of it's actually taking place now online uh, with these kind of discussion groups. There are some very active groups in exile that publish a lot of things, um, which you can easily access on the Internet. Uh, just the other day, Yemeni Times editor, who is based in Sana'a, um, 
kind of said the same thing and I'm saying now. Well, so maybe some of these conflicts that we're having uh, reemerge again as a, as a fundamental national problem throughout Yemen is it can be resolved very quickly if the regime itself stopped uh, instigating and murdering people on the streets. Uh, when is it going to take for the regime to actually change its course? When, when its own officials start being murdered on the street in response to the violence that's taking place? So that, that's... You don't hear that uh, in many con- in many contexts uh, around so the world. Or Whether or not it's actually, I mean, it's written in English, of course. He's, he's, he's writing this in English, and it's for an English audience, and maybe this is something that is ex- um, permissible because the readership is rather limited. Uh, but I suspect if, if it's not in the pa- newspaper, there are newspapers that have been closed down and been allowed to be open after the editor's been in jail for a while. That happens. Uh, there are a lot of underground um, publications of you that take place. But again, with the Internet, uh, it's a different world than it was in the 70s where everyone's passing kind of leaflets around. And uh, I mean, Yemenis are going to continue to read. This is something that we have to uh, applaud. And, uh, and it makes it a much more difficult society to control, of course, and to convince that there's only one, one route to follow. Uh, my suspicion is that increasingly as the educational pr- um, ministry fails in its task of educating the next generation, you're going to have less of this kind of um, vibrant um, intellectual class as well as uh, a a general public who at least reads and reads various opinions. Sure. I wanted to ask you to elaborate on two points. Uh, One is the reemergence of Sufi orders. Mm -hmm. No, the, who are replacing the Ismailis are Najdi, Sunni, um, loyalists to the regime, or those who will, uh, who are beneficiaries of new housing and, um, let's say, stipends, uh, will uh, not have any problem with protecting the borders and assuring that there's no problem coming from it. Because there were actually quite some, there's some um, frequent uh, violent attacks, particularly in uh, Abyan and uh, in um, Najra. Nijra, sorry, um, recently um, surrounding the charismatic, well, let's say the, the, the community leader who was arrested and then one member was, was killed. Um, and this is material that largely comes from uh, the, the debate about or the information that comes from this uh, largely comes from the Ismaili community itself, which is in exile. So one has to you know, take that into consideration. Uh, but when, when one actually looks further back and looking at, at the the erection of this fence, this barrier, the digging of trenches, and the kind of enforcement of a, uh, uh, a no-man zone 
during the height of the, the, the conflict in 2009, they actually extended it 10 kilometers within Yemeni territory, knowing that full well that in the, in the past, the Salah regime was actually very aggressive in, in trying to pressure the Saudi regime not uh, to erect these, these barriers, knowing full well the consequences it would have on the region economically. Because they, they, they began to demonstrate um, solidarity with those on the other side of the border who actually were picking up weapons. Whether or not they were directly um, threatening the Saudi uh, sovereignty um, is another issue, but again, there's interrelationships that are economic, uh, social, uh, familial um, that cross these borders. I mean, many of these uh, areas that become uh, that are heavily populated along the borders uh, had, again, no border existed until recently. So think about the consequences of a uh, of halting all traffic between two, um, two heavily populated areas where most of the trade was going back and forth north-south in those areas as opposed to Sana'a or other parts of, of Yemen. Shutting that business off, shutting off those, that life uh, off for locals only had one logical um, consequence. Now, uh, there's a Russian scholar named Knish Yes, who has written a lot about uh, these uh, uh, these resurgence of Sufism in the South. I would recommend um, that he's far more capable of giving you the, the details of of these groups. Um, but it's a phenomenon that's been um, picked up on by um, by by those who are also studying the so-called Salafist movements in the South. It is it is kind of a pushback dynamic going on, especially as more and more Hadramis are returning from from, ex- from living outside the country. Um, and you find quite a few of them um, becoming major spokespersons or advocates for the movements in places like Dubai, Abu Dhabi as well. Um, kind of the tradition, the old patterns of, of extended families forging networks Around around the world, it's as Gulf money and wealth in the Gulf concentrates uh, to kind of extreme levels. You have a lot of that element now settling in the Gulf itself, and so they have, there's a proximity dynamic which may also contribute a little bit to the rebuilding and um, fortifying the the community in in, in South Yemen as well, the communities. One could say that um, some critics of U.S. foreign policy would suggest that has been a problem since the 19th century. Uh, I'm I'm afraid uh, we may not see any dramatic change in in the relationship the United States has with the outside world. Um, In in my personal case in Kosovo, just to give you a little anecdote, uh, we were, as Kosovo Albanians who were, were resisting uh, Serbian nationalism at the initial stages were actually considered the terrorists or the threat to stability in the region. 
this was actually uh, statements coming from elements of the State Department. And the only way we were able to change that dynamic um, was to convince the Americans that it was in their interest to change their attitude towards the conflict in the Balkans. And um, I would suggest to my brothers and sisters in Yemen who are really who want to go back home and, and see and have their children and their grandchildren be raised in, in that wonderful part of the world uh, that we have to invest our energies to try to persuade the world that resolving conflicts as opposed to instigating them and profiting from them would, might be a, a long-term goal for all of us to to seek. So we have to uh, we have to convince people that it's in their interest not to allow Yemen to fall into chaos. But it's a tough fight because there are a lot of interests who profit from this. If, if, it, if not financially, um, ideologically, doctrinally, it fits for many people that kind of classic pattern. This is just how these people are over there, and the only way to deal with them is this way. So I beseech you to get all our all our friends in the world to say to promote the Yemen as a wonderful, beautiful place with beautiful people and and write, respond to whenever we hear these kind of crude stereotypes about Yemen. Yes, sir. stated in the beginning that um, social scientists will often resort or evoke the, the spiraling uh, rise of uh, uh, the, the pressure put on the natural resources of Yemen, uh, the lack of water, um, which is an interesting story behind that, but uh, maybe we can um, talk about that in a different kind of setting, conference. But yeah, it's there. It's considered a problem. I don't think Yemen as a society, as, as a region, um, cannot sustain uh, a larger population. It's not the issue. It's the issue of distributing who has the right to use the water and what reasons do you use the water, for which reasons do you use the water, who actually is allowed to farm the land, and what do you grow on this land. On this land? Um, there is a, is a big problem of distribution of, of resources, as in many societies. Um, and so I would suggest that... Uh, 23 million people does not constitute uh, an overwhelming burden on on a land that has historically been the breadbasket of of the of, of the Red Sea and Eastern Africa. There are other forces that are play. The the most famous, I guess, is the um, the demand for cut, which is the kind of a uh, a mild stimulant that is very popular um, amongst. Uh, Yemenis, but also large numbers of people in Saudi Arabia um, as well. And it's very lucrative. Farmers make much more money growing cot than um, growing uh, wheat or, or rice, which, again, Yemen has historically produced in large amounts. And we're even able to export these commodities to neighboring areas. 
till recently. So it's just a, a poor management. And as in other societies like Colombia or others that are influenced by the illicit drugs, um, it can have consequences to actually how one manages the land. stop uh, people who have a profit motive um, to bring a, introduce a product into a market where there's a high demand for that product. And that's certainly the case with cot in the north. Uh, there's, you can still buy cot in, in Saudi Arabia. It just means the profits are that much larger. Um, and, of course, it empowers a whole different element of Yemeni society and Saudi society than before. The criminal, the criminal element, if you will, the gray economy uh, often finds proves itself to be much more um, adaptable than any uh, police uh, measure uh, adopted by the state or otherwise. So uh, the cut still flows. Um, the consequences uh, are that it's a militarization of the region. It means that, uh, say, the more formal economy suffers. Uh, but I don't think uh, those who are in the business of uh, Smuggling cotton to Saudi Arabia are are too much uh, affected by the, the the erection of these borders. They may have to pay a little bit more to uh, to those who help smuggle the material in, uh, the drug in. But I mean, that's it's an interesting topic. To I've, I've looked at this more in the context of the Ottoman Empire period, when there is these parallel economies emerging, what impact it has on local societies, but. It's going to be a long time before we will actually study, go to the region and study the consequences of this barrier and what adaptation local populations make to to survive. Of course, at the moment, much of that border area is depopulated. People have been forced from the border areas, and they're living in horrible conditions in, in Sada in the north or in uh, refugee camps all the way down to Sana'a. And on the other side, there has been this effort to to change the uh, demographic, if you will, on the, on the Saudi side of the border. Well, I think if there are no other questions, I think uh, we should give Professor Blooming an opportunity to rest and uh, thank him for a very stimulating